Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 77 and audio season four, episode 11 of Music Is Not A Genre. As always, thank you for watching and listening and clicking and sharing and subscribing and donating. You can find almost everything at youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo. Uh, if you're an audiophile, you can go to anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. There's also a button there uh, to donate, which I would love. And you can find this on most audio podcast streaming services and you can join me at patreon.com slash music is not a genre where you can see my interview series and some other exclusive podcasts and live performances uh, for just ten dollars a month and as always i would love to have you there as well this week's topic is a near and dear one to me, uh, as many of these are, some more than others. The title is Billy Joel versus Are You People Serious? And the reason I uh, titled it that will become evident. This may be a little freewheeling. It may be a little all over the place because I've been living with Billy Joel for a very long time. Uh, that's uh, not literally. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, don't don't contact me to ask me what he wears to bed. I have always respected him and have followed his career and his story and the stories that other people tell about him. And if there's one thing that you may know, uh, having listened to or watched these podcasts before, is that I always write uh, a thorough text version underneath, which is not a transcript. It is often a summary of what I'm saying, but it's just as often another take on, on what I'm saying and is something that I may touch on and may not touch on. I will be touching on it uh, somewhat today, but I think I'm going to kind of go wild here and just uh, speak my mind uh, on Billy Joel uh, in general. He has, uh, at this point, in many ways, I think a bit of a, uh, I guess, a legendary aura about him in that he is clearly a regular guy doing what he loves out there. I mean, breaking records, performing at Madison Square Garden and all of the, the things that he's done, uh, his, you know, dual concerts with Elton John. And yet at the same time, he hasn't released uh, any new material in 20 years and that itself was his classical work, Fantasies and Delusions. And so he hasn't released what I will very carefully call his kind of music, the music we know him best for, uh, in well over 20 years. 
And so that kind of makes him a bit of a, a, a mystery, a bit of a, he, you know, he isn't a J.D. Salinger by, by any stretch because he's out in the world actually doing what he does and being public about it and even giving interviews and such like that. But the fact that someone as prolific as he was prior to that uh, is now no longer releasing music, although he says he is constantly writing music, is, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. And to many people, including me, it's a little heartbreaking. And at the same time, you have to respect it because he did what he did for, uh, yeah, almost, I guess, around 20 years, maybe a little less than that. And then, I'm sorry, 30 years, maybe a little less. And then was like, I'm out, I'm done. I'm gonna do something different. I'll do whatever I want, honestly. Uh, he has nothing to prove. And yet, and yet, and this is why I titled this the way I, I have titled it. Uh, it is often Billy Joel versus whomever or whatever. And this has boggled my mind for years, years. I mean, I remember back probably as far as the 1980s, but certainly the 1990s, reading reviews, uh, most likely in Rolling Stone, uh, if he ever got reviewed in Spin, it was a miracle, you know, or some, something like that. Uh, and they were usually, even when the reviews were positive, they always came with qualifications. The reviewer would have to take him down a peg for one reason or another. And, I, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more later on. But then there is, of course, as we are prone to do with everything really in the world, but it, this is, you know, mostly a music podcast. So especially in the music world, we compare and contrast and we have to create rivalries where none exist. I did a whole podcast on that. I think bogus rivalries or I think it was called Vice Versus. Uh, and you can look it up. It's out there. It's on youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo or patreon.com slash music is not a genre. It's on anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. Uh, look that up. And I get deeply into the idea that the vast majority of music rivalries aren't actual rivalries uh, in, by, by any stretch other than fully fabricated and created by the media, by critics, and sometimes by fans. And that is certainly the case with, and I didn't put the name in the title, but I'm sure if, you're, if you've read the text or if you know anything about Billy Joel and rivalries, you know that I'm going to say Elton John. And here we go. So they both had kind of gestating careers in the late 60s. They both hit, uh, had some hits and, you know, early hits and breakouts in the early 70s. They rode through the 1970s, mostly very successfully, you know, and they had big, big hits in the 1980s and even in the 1990s. And then, of course, after that, things kind of go in different directions. But my contention is they were always in different directions. There is a tendency for us to need to defend what we believe. And I think it's important to believe things strongly, yes, and to know why you believe them. To be analytical about it, though, and to say, well, 
is this just an emotional, very, very subjective thing? Do I have more, uh, you know, maybe less subjective reasons why I believe what I believe? Can I respect an opposing viewpoint? Does my believing one thing meaning I have to disbelieve or negate another, kind of all that stuff. And that applies very directly here to the whole Billy Joel versus Elton John thing. Okay, so there are singer-songwriters who played the piano. And because they became popular around the same time, within a couple of years of each other, I guess, that means that they, what, were the same, were close enough to the same, needed to be compared uh, you know, you need to pick which one's better. It's like a Beatles and Stones things, and I'm going to go back to that, and you'll see how I tie that in. But my point is there's no need to do any of that. All right? Now, it's fun. Hey, if you want to have a debate with a friend or a colleague or, you know, an, another reviewer or whatever about the merits of two different artists and why you lean towards one artist rather than another, hey, that's great. Just don't pretend that that's fact. Don't pretend that your opinion is definitive. I don't even pretend that my opinion is definitive, and I do have strong opinions about these artists. And uh, you, you may be able to guess which way I lean just by virtue of this you know, particular podcast. Uh, you know, so, but maybe not. You know, and I don't think that... I think it's uh, our nature. Everything's a competition, Conflict is the law of art or whatever that saying is, and that is very true. But the, there's nuanced conflict. There's conflict that comes from understanding and respect. It's like the difference between uh, a review and a critique, where uh, a review or let's say a poorly done review is so sure of its opinion and is so denigrating, let's say, that's a negative review, it's so denigrating to what it's reviewing that there's really no separation between the review and the reviewer, whereas a critique can break down something and maybe talk about flaws or talk about things that worked and didn't work and may ultimately, uh, you know, say the review may ultimately be negative. It may be, you know, on the whole saying that that body of work or that work is not the greatest in one way or another in many ways, but yet still show respect for it. And that to me is a critique. And I, you know, that's just the way I happen to name them labels, like genre labels, uh, an expedient. But that's kind of uh, how I see conflict, which is, well, why not get into the nitty gritty and break down what each artist actually does? And what each one does well and one does maybe one thing better than, than the other and talk about, you know, the, the real nuances of what they do and what they do differently as opposed to uh, this kind of broad umbrella kind of blanket statement of, well, they both, you know, these are both singer-songwriters who play piano and one is better at it than the other. One is more respected by critics than the, than the other, you know, critically better, however you want to say it. I think that that's bogus. And it's something that's, I'll just throw right out, it's actually pissed me off for a number of years. And it's partly because 
I tend to disagree with critics. Uh, there is a history, I, I talked about this a little earlier, of Rolling Stone just not having the utmost respect for Billy Joel. And I'm still trying to figure out why. I have some reasons written down here. Yes, people watching. If you're not watching, what I'm doing now is A, talking over that low-flying plane, but also B, I'm showing people my notes, my truncated, my abridged notes from the text that I have. But listen, I'm not a fan of shows like The Voice or America's Got Talent. Uh, I used to enjoy watching award shows, Oscars, Emmys, Grammys. Um, I don't honestly have time for that anymore. I do look at who wins and who loses, and I'm more fascinated by who's nominated than anything else. Uh, but, you know, they all, all of the things I just mentioned, lean towards that need for us to create competition, to create conflict where no conflict exists. And it's not only very, very, very rarely true, there's almost never that the two or handful of artists that you're, you're pitting against each other actually have any, any beef or any criticism of each other. That's just not how most artists work, and especially artists who know themselves well and who are successful either artistically or you know, in, in other ways. And so looking here at, at my notes, here's, just, here's some key ways in which uh, Billy Joel and Elton John are different. Well, their backgrounds are different. We know that. Uh, American, British, uh, they have different personal lives in many ways. Uh, they, you know, different uh, relationships that they've had. One is, you know, uh, Elton John is gay and Billy Joel is straight. They've had problems here and there with relationships, but it seems as though Elton John has a bit more of a stable relationship life, uh, maybe quite a bit more than Billy Joel. Uh, they uh, have had children at different times in their lives. Uh, they've each dealt with uh, some form of substance abuse. Uh, but but they're, they, uh, those are different, and the trajectories of those were different. Uh, their overall sound is quite different just because something, you know, it, it would be like saying, well, two bands have guitars, so they must be the same in some way when we know how many thousands of bands have guitar and how different they can all sound. Um, you are welcome to comment in describing how you see Billy Joel's sound as different from Elton John's. Uh, their vocals, they, they both could be pretty, you know, uh, you know, bold and strident in how they sing and also very delicate. But uh, other than that, quite different. Uh, you know, Elton John tended more tends or tended more toward uh, straight out soulful kind of white soul singing in many ways, and and Billy Joel was kind of more, you know, rock and Beatles esque, you could say. And bringing that up again on purpose, their songwriting template quite different. I don't know that Elton John has ever written a song all by himself. If he has, I apologize. And hey, but Bernie Taupin, his songwriting partner writes all the lyrics. I'm sure there's, a, there's maybe some crossover there. But, but Billy Joel, I don't know. And I'd have to research this, and maybe someone out there knows. Has there been a song on any of his albums where he shared a writing credit? If so, 
that's probably very rare. I would say most, if not all, of what he did, he wrote himself uh, music and lyrics, so very different. So that their, that's their creation process is different. Their, their touchstones are different. Uh, they had some actual, you know, similarities with some of their early work, and they've, of course, crossed over here and there, but in terms of the things that they were influenced by, uh, you can hear a clear, straight-up Beatles influence in so much of what Billy Joel does, but also more classical piano playing in many ways and, and the way he structures his, his work, even though it always has hooks. And Elton John, he... Yeah, I mean, he did Beatles covers, you know, so uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds being, I think, the big one. But, and and had certain vocal things and harmonies and, you know, like that, but more so, I would say less so than Billy Joel. And also the way he put it together was a little more uh, kind of classic rock freewheeling, I guess you could say. And uh, Billy Joel was more kind of, Singer, songwriter, very more like tight arrangements and tight, you know, uh, writing in the way uh, they're, you know, we talked about their career and personal life. Their piano playing, uh, they both play piano, but what, right? You know, uh, I think that Billy Joel's a little flashier with his piano playing and has that kind of classical uh, technique in many ways. Uh, which crosses over into the pop and rock that that he does and did. Elton John is is more of that kind of bluesy, uh, just straight up kind of rock piano. And, uh, and I'll mention that again uh, when I get down to talking about my music. And listen, I grew up with both of them and love and respect both of them. I have done cover songs, live cover songs of both of them. I, I did uh, recent chronologies of both of them. Listen to every single uh, you know, extant, uh, their primary work there, uh, you know, know by, know their bios fairly well and have read reviews. And I've come to three conclusions. Billy Joel is to the Beatles as Elton John is to the Stones. And I think I've said this about other bands and I guess that's just the way my brain works because they're in some ways the template for all other comparisons that came after the, the kind of the Beatles Stones thing, and it's the same thing. They never, they didn't have a rivalry. They worked together sometimes. Uh, one helped the other. I, I think that, in fact, we'll say uh, that. And well, let me get into this a little bit more. But if you if you look at the trajectory of the Beatles' career, it was relatively short. Put out a lot of material, and then broke up. Did their own thing. The Stones, extremely long and continue to this day and very, very uh, rooted in live performance and all of that. Billy Joel, excuse me, uh, same thing, Short, shorter career, not as short as the Beatles, quite a bit shorter in terms of creating new music than Elton John. And uh, I think Elton John has always had more of a kind of a collaborative band-oriented sound, partly because he co-writes, then Billy Joel is more, again, kind of singer-songwriter coming from one source, uh, you know, and that's how so many of the Beatles songs were. Sure, they, you know, collaborated at times, but most of them were, I mostly wrote this song, you, you mostly wrote that song. And my contention, and uh, 
this goes to my number two, which is my favorite will always be Billy Joel. Uh, when I do chronologies, I often look for, is something going to change my mind? And it's happened. It happened when I listened to all of the Bee Gees and their solo work and, and everything. I was blown away by how diverse it was. I, that was not something I expected. But usually it doesn't happen. Uh, I, my opinion will be reinforced. When I listened to all of Rush's material, I thought, all right, I dig some of it and the rest of it is, yeah, I respect it, but it's not my thing. That was what I thought before I ever listened to their entire catalog. That happened here with Billy Joel and Elton John. I needed to be open-minded enough to say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's so much of Elton John's work that I haven't heard that it's going to grab me in a way that's unexpected and it'll change my mind. That did not happen. I uh, enjoyed uh, quite a bit of it and was surprised by some of it. But again, the conclusion is the same as where I started, which is, you know, Billy Joel will be my favorite, you know, I think forever. And of the Beatles and Stones, my favorite are the Beatles. Here's a contention I'd love to hear your opinion on. I would bet you that if your favorite band, Beatles and Stones, is the Beatles, then your favorite is Billy Joel. And that if your favorite is the Stones, your favorite is Elton John. I could be completely wrong about that. But I just have that sense because there's parallels there in the music and in the other things I mentioned. I think that that's the way people would lean. I really want to hear your opinion on that because this is just, I've always found this interesting. And, and uh, I wonder if I'm completely wrong about that or if other people feel the same way. And the third conclusion that I come up with is, Again, what I've been saying, there are almost no critics who favor Billy Joel. I remember reading once uh, a critic saying that Billy Joel tries too hard to make every song on an album a single, which in my mind reads as, you know, every song with hooks, every song tightly written, every song, let's just say good. And even though there are artists and albums I respect very much when there are, you know, what are called album tracks where they're clearly not intended to be a single and they somehow, you know, fit into that album and help, you know, hold it all together. And it, it's one of the things that makes that album beautiful. I don't think that that makes that album or artist any better or any worse. And so to say that most of what Billy Joel does, if not all of it, is intended to be enjoyed, not just as part of an album, but on its own as a single, and then say that that's a negative is ridiculous to me. It's just, it's utterly ridiculous to me. And I have still not really cracked why there's so much more praise and respect heaped upon Elton John, which, listen, they both deserve it. They both deserve all, you know, all of it. And I think one of the things I, my question is, you know, Billy is kind of very open about his intentions. He's very kind of strident in the way he, he writes and what, you know, let's just say, oh, I don't know, the, the innocent man, you know, he clearly wanted those songs to be homage songs of different styles and different groups, performers, or other things, Nylon Curtain, he, he patterned a lot after Beatles work. And 
or if he will, let's say root beer rag, he wanted that to be a modern day ragtime song, you know? And so he's very pointed and clear with his intentions. Whereas I think Elton John had a bit more of a loose, like, let's see what happens kind of thing. And sure, there were, I'm sure there were many intentions there, but it doesn't come across that way. And so there is uh, what, uh, what other people might call an artsiness to what Elton John does, which I think is also bogus. Not that it's not arty, but that it's no more arty than what Billy Joel does. It's just a different approach to things. And because I happen to favor, well, work your ass off to make every song as good as it can be and, and that it can stand on its own, whether it's part of an album or not, then I favor Billy Joel. And that's, you know, then that is just an opinion, you know, but I wonder if you, what do you think? Do you think that that is a reason why critics favor Elton John over Billy Joel? It really does mystify me because as listening through all of this, how can anybody say, how can anybody compare the two, first of all, or say that one is better than the other by that much of a stretch? And even this recent you know, greatest songs of all time, Rolling Stone, there were, I think, you know, more than one from Elton John, maybe three or four, but only one from Billy Joel, and it was scenes from an Italian restaurant. And that's just such a pretentious critic. I know it was many people on that panel, but that's just so pretentious that the one song you would pick is the song Sweet that he did. And he did more than one Sweet but that that would be the one as opposed to just some of these amazingly tightly written pop songs that I think lyrically address uh, a whole bunch of things, but especially relationships in pretty direct and, and yet poignant ways. And I, don't under, I really don't understand why that's not uh, more respected. Okay. Now, I want you to gestate on that, you know, or whatever, mull it over. Send me your comments and let me know what your opinion is. Uh, that's just something that I think I will never completely understand. I'd love to talk to a critic about and get more into the nitty-gritty of it, have a real discussion. Uh, and in the meantime, because Billy Joel is one of my favorite artists and became more favorite after I did the chronography, I'm going to go through real quick some of his stuff. So he started in the 60s, a group called The Hassles rock band who did a lot of covers, transitioned to uh, a band called Attila, which was like psychedelic heavy metal, uh, kind of the doors, uh, but a little heavier than that. And then that didn't happen. And so he was doing, I believe, piano bars and things and kind of did his own thing. His debut album as himself was called Spring Harbor, which a fan would know. Uh, it was uh, sh the first time She's Got Away was released. It was not a hit, really, at the time. It, the live version of it, which I do think is actually better because he f had found his voice more by then, ended up being a hit later on, years later. Uh, and I think was that because he had had hits prior to that. And they thought, well, why not release this? You know, it's an early song. In a similar way, because I just did a podcast on Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, that the song Hunger Strike from Temple of the Dog was actually uh, recorded or released in 1990. Did, did okay, not great. But after those bands, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden became famous, in 92 it was re-released. And everybody thought, well, they created a super group or it was a new band. 
when, you know, when, or, you know, these were famous people just doing like a charity album or whatever, when they had done that before they had all that much fame, you know, and then when the fame came, the song was re-released. So that's where I see the parallel there. Uh, Everybody Loves You Now is also on that album. Great song that, that, you know, shows his range. Piano Man, the second album where he actually started getting some decent, you know, level of hits. Billy the Kid has always just blown me away. I love how tongue-in-cheek some of it is, and yet there's a, you know, how he brings it around to the personal thing at the end. This was just cool. You Are My Home is a beautiful song. Captain Jack is one of those that it's kind of a love-hate thing, and when I remember when I first heard it years and years ago, it surprised me that it was something that Billy Joel did because I had grown up with his late 70s, early 80s stuff. Street Life Serenade, is the is the last of what I'd call those early albums, and it has uh, Root Beer Rag and Entertainer. I believe I read once that it was rushed out, and so it's a little more sparing than other albums. But the fact that he has Root Beer Rag was something that I bought the sheet music to and learned, and learned and played and played and played and got eventually got fairly good at even though I was not up to the same level of classical playing uh, as Billy Joel. Uh, and The Entertainer, another great song. And then he put out the album Turnstiles, which to me w- I would call transitional. It, it's, he's trying new things and kind of expanding certain things. Songs like Say Goodbye to Hollywood and New York State of Mind, and, and, but then also Angry Young Man. Uh, and Miami 2017, those are, I think, the highlights from that. Uh, it's actually a, a really good, I would say maybe of his early albums that might be like his first four albums or so is probably my favorite. Uh, but then next phase, the next two albums, huge, 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 huge. The Stranger, Moving Out, the title track, Just The Way You Are, Scenes From An Italian Restaurant, Only The Good Die Young, She's Always A Woman, and then Vienna, which is a, you know, a sleeper, but there's an also an awesome song. I mean, what an album. And those, those songs are not their similarities, but they're, they're very different, you know, each one of them. So it's not just this, I'm a piano player, I'm going to play every song like a singer, songwriter, piano player. And then can just continues that with 52nd Street and Big Shot, Honesty, My Life. And I also like Zanzibar from that. Uh, that. That's really, I think, the meat, those two albums, kind of the meat of his... Uh, 70s when he skyrocketed to fame and and all of that and usually critics will say one of those albums is their favorite i forget which one because i disagree so but that's fine and i understand let that be you know they'll say it's their best of his work and i disagree with that as well but that's because my favorite phase came next which is people watching People not watching, I'm pointing to an 8-track at the top here with my bad weatherman finger of Glass Houses. 1980 was the first Billy Joel album that captivated me. And so, like my friend said, that's often your favorite. In this case, not always true, but this case it is true. Uh, It's still probably my favorite, uh, although that does shift. All of side one, you may be right, sometimes a fantasy, don't ask me why, it's still rock and roll to me. And then all for Lena, which I had forgotten about until a few years ago, I heard it and was like, oh my God, why didn't I love this song 
to begin with. It's kind of like uh, the, the, the podcast I just did about how when time passes, you reconsider old work. You know, um, I don't know this. Uh, I, f- I forget the second half of the album, but that first half in itself is just a masterpiece. And then comes Nylon Curtain, which is something that kind of fell through the cracks for me. I remember some of the singles, Pressure. I love the song Pressure. But it was right around the same time as the song Under Pressure. And I, th- and I thought Pressure was, at the time, far superior. I just loved it. I, I loved the intensity of it. Um, and Goodnight Saigon was one of those songs that I heard, I think, later and didn't know it was Billy Joel at first and then thought, well, it must have been a cover because it seemed like a classic song. And hadn't listened to the whole album until I did the chronography a couple of years ago. And when I did, I mean, Nylon Curtain just in, just blew me away. And I think reassessing his all his body of work, that now may be my favorite album of his. Also has Allentown on it and Laura. And uh, Laura is a quirky song. And Allentown, I grew up in, in, in and near Philadelphia, so, you know... Philly loves Billy Joel. Philly loves music in general. Philly is not very hypercritical of music the way some cities can be and the way some critics can be. But there's a soft spot in Philly's heart for Billy Joel, and that was even before he released Allentown, which is a town in Pennsylvania near, you know, Philly. He talks about the Jersey Shore, which we were all, you know, all had in common living there. But that's my favorite phase, the glass houses, nylon curtain. That's often the case with a lot of the artists I talk about because I loved that production style. I've said it before, from 78 to 82, let's say. Then comes the giant, Innocent Man. Kind of stands on its own. It was meant to be an homage album. It was just so huge. So that was when I had sort of come of age in a way. And it re- and so he re-entered my life in a different way from glass houses and so Innocent Man, Longest Time, Tell Her About It, Uptown Girl, Leave a Tender Moment Alone, Keeping the Faith. I mean, just a blockbuster. And I, Uptown Girl's been in the news lately because it's mentioned in, uh, I don't know, was it an Olivia Rodrigo song? And my kids actually know Uptown Girl, which is kind of neat, just I think maybe because of that. And it's one of those albums that I remember listening to over and over and over and don't necessarily feel like I need to listen to it again, not because I don't uh, like it, but because I think because I heard it so much. And then, uh, so that I don't have, and I don't have, I forget where I had that. I might have had a copy of it on cassette. And then the next one, uh, well, not the next one, but after that little break, and he released Greatest Hits 1 and 2 in 1985, which I eventually bought on CD, and that's right here. Great one to start with, I think. But get get this one too, volume three. Just get all three of them. It's a great place to start if you don't know a lot about Billy Joel's work. Uh, but then the next album, The Bridge. Now I had, I guess, moved away from Billy Joel during this period. I think it was 86. And uh, I remember the song, This Is The Time, because I was part of this best of the class for right around that time in high school and the TV special, that was the theme for it, was This Is The Time, which makes sense if you know the song. Uh, A Matter of Trust, I actually did kind of like that song when it came out. And Baby Grand, I know, you know, people know, 
I don't know that album that well, The Bridge, and it's probably, if I had to pick my least favorite of his, still, you know, still good work. And what's funny is it's also Billy Joel's least favorite. He He's quoted as saying that he had to rush it out and there were other things going on. There were negative reviews that were given to it and he tends to agree with them. Uh, but he's also a pretty humble guy, so who knows, you know. There are, if you're out there, if that The Bridge is your favorite album, let me know. I want to know why. I would love to hear why. Because then comes Stormfront. You would almost consider the mid-80s a bit of a lull for him, if you want to call it that. But then Stormfront comes, and it was gigantic. It's probably my second or third favorite. I have it right here on CD. Uh, it was the first CD of his that I ever bought, and I played it to death. You have uh, That's Not Her Style, We Didn't Start the Fire, The Down Easter Alexa, I Go to Extremes, Shameless, uh, before Garth Brooks made it famous, Leningrad, and the beautiful, beautiful song, And So It Goes. Uh, just, I love that, you know, there's a classical uh, quality to it, but just, just beautiful. I, I've always loved that song. And yet, uh, you know, overall, Stormfront and the next album, you forget how hard they were. You forget how hard rocking they were, especially the the you know the more the tracks that weren't as famous. And then several years later, ninety three, I believe, comes River of Dreams, which I have here. Re-listening to it, I uh, had a newfound respect for the album as a whole. I think because River of Dreams was played to death, I just didn't want to hear it anymore. And that's understandable. You know that happens with songs. But it also defined the album for me in later years, which is a mistake because there's so much more on that album. And honestly, the song Lullaby makes the whole album worth it to me. I think that that ranks as probably one of my top five favorite Billy Joel songs. Uh, I have absolutely teared up listening to that song. It's just, it's beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. And then, well, I pointed to the wrong one before. There's River of Dreams, Greatest Hits, Volume 3 in 97, which has, I think, the last pop song he's ever released, which was To Make You Feel My Love. And other people have covered it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, beautiful, right? And sad because he really did say at the time that he was done. There was no, you know, I know he released Fantasies and Delusions in 2001, but geez, you know, uh, I would love to know your opinion as to how you feel about that and what you think. Uh, hopefully you respect his decision, but do you wish he w would release the things that he's written since then? Because he apparently has written a ton. Uh, or do you feel like, well, he did his, he did his duty and, and killed it and doesn't need to do a single other thing. I think that, you know, listening to music is a conversation for me. So when, especially, um, a real songwriter releases something it, it gives you insight into where they are in their lives and what they're doing next and where, you know, where they've been and, and what they're listening to in many ways and how in touch or out of touch the things they are, whether they care or not about stuff like that. And it's just stuff that I am always interested in that you don't get now because it's been almost, you know, 30 years since he released something like that. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's the rundown there. And, and so you can tell listening to me how much of a favorite he is for me. And even though, again, 
I grew up with both uh, he and Elton, him and Elton John. It's just the kinship, I guess, I feel with Billy Joel in a lot of ways. And it's partly because I grew up playing the piano. And the, the way I play piano, oddly enough, my piano style is actually much more like Elton John's. But the way I write songs and the way I sing, I think even, and the way I write lyrics in particular is much more like Billy Joel. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain way that he uh, approaches uh, lyrics about relationships that I do where they can be very direct and blunt and yet uh, hope, you know, hopefully insightful and have its, its own level of poetry to it and yet it's very plain spoken. And that's something I've always strived to do with my lyrics. And it's something that he's done almost exclusively through everything. He's not, I, I don't tell as many story, you know, do as many story songs that, as he's done. But other than that, I think there's a, there's a similarity there. And you can hear that. I, I transitioned away from writing songs on the piano a pretty long time ago. And even though I still incorporate piano in what I do, it's not nearly as much. And usually the song was not necessarily crafted on the piano. Or if it was, I take the piano out and do something else with it. Like my song, All Kinds of Right, was actually written on the piano. But um, there's not that much piano. There's piano in one of the versions and not in the other or very little in the other. Uh, and then a song like The Sky, which has a, a lot of piano. It was conceived for piano, but it doesn't sound to me anything like Billy Joel. So I don't think those are good examples. In fact, I think the best example is kind of a one-two punch from my album, What It Is, uh, that I released under my ori original band name, Nick. And it's the intro song and the title song. The intro song is called Tension, the number 10 and S-H-U-N, but it's a play on words, which is shun, which is the, the second word in the song is shun, don't shun me, you know, don't ignore me, but tension, because there's a tension in the relationship, and then attention, like pay attention to me, so the whole, that was what that title meant, and the whole song is piano-based. Uh, it's a very short song because it's an intro song. And even though there's, you know, drums, bass, strings, whatever, it's, it's piano yeah, and guitar. It, you'll hear it. It's piano-based. And there are other piano-based songs that I've written before and after them, but I think that's a perfect uh, match with what Billy Joel does. And it leads into the title song, What It Is, which is several people's favorites from my early work, and uh, was a kind of a minor hit, if you can call it that, uh, back then. And even though that is not a piano-based song, you can hear the connection with tension and also the, the way it's sung and the way it's presented, I think, has a Billy Joel quality to it. You might not readily get that, but as I've been doing lately, I'm going to tack it on to the end of this podcast. So you be the judge. Maybe uh, listen to the, the, this uh, one-two punch here, Tension and what it is, and then go listen to some Billy Joel stuff, especially from uh, late 70s, early 80s, and see if you can find the similarity in there, the, the, you know, the kinship. Uh, so do you have a favorite? of uh, Billy Joel and Elton John. Um, do you like them both equally? Do you dislike them both equally? I would love to know that. Why do you think, again, I want to know, why do you think critics favor Elton John over Billy Joel? And do you agree or disagree? Do you enjoy music rivalries? Do you, do you like 
the you know the Biggie Tupac or the the Beatles and Stones or this one or any of the others, um, or do you think that they're just distracting and they take away from the music and they're ridiculous? Uh, but if you do like them, what are some others that you like or that you dislike that have that have drawn your attention? Is it possible for you or anyone to heavily favor one artist while still respecting the other and not turning it into a fight? Uh, the way I've hopefully done with Billy Joel and Elton John. Discuss it all. Let me know what you're thinking and feeling and your opinion of everything I've said or things I haven't said. Uh, I'm going to be doing a future podcast where I respond to some of the comments I've been getting and fill in some gaps in things that I overlooked in other podcasts. Got a real clever name for it, which I will debut uh, hopefully before the end of 2021. But until then, please let me know what you're thinking and feeling, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you very much for spending this time with me, and I'll talk to you next week. Don't shun me, I know you want me.
can't stop singing It's a sound in my ear and it won't stop ringing It's a pain everywhere It won't stop beating It's I'm getting larger in the air and smaller It's a God in my hand Makes me harder and I know it's coming 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 I know it's It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 